couple of things I want you to pay attention to here. One, I want you to pay attention to this ball. I want you to see what it does during the message today. If I can get it to set still for a second. And the other thing is, is that I want you to pay attention to this right now. Did you know what this is? It's called a Rubik's Cube. A Rubik's Cube has 43 quintillion possible configurations, the 3 by 3 uh, Rubik's Cube. 43 quintillion is 43 with 18 zeros behind it. If I were to come up with a new configuration for in every second of time that I was alive, I would be dead by now. That's for, for sure. I'll tell you the truth because uh, there's that many in it. How many in here, without peeling the stickers off, I've heard that so many times. How many of you in here, without peeling the stickers off, know how to solve this already? See, there's there are two, three, four. I mean, what are the odds of you coming up with a solution randomly? 43 quintillion possibilities. Understand that. You see, what people believe about our faith from the outside is that we're superstitious. I was reading a novel just this past week, just this past week, and it was talking about a group of people and it said that they had given up their superstitions. They had no religion at all. And what I read into this, obviously, was is that when people look at our faith, what they think is, is that we're simply superstitious, believing things that possibly, it couldn't possibly be true. And they don't recognize that there are facts that, that support our faith. And so that what happens is many believers... Many of you probably have acquiesced to whatever these people would argue with you about, and you simply saying something along the lines, which fuels what they're saying. Well, I just believe it. I just believe it. And that's your reason, and therefore they think you're just a superstitious individual because you have no facts to base, up, base your faith on. It has caused us to be looked at as non-thinkers. As people that are not really intelligent enough, in fact is, you'll probably hear some of this, is that we're not even intelligent enough to go out and vote. Because we don't have enough sense in order to be able to reason out things. And this sort of reasoning, this reasoning is even considered by us uh, sometimes, is more reasonable than our own reasoning, more intellectual than our own reasoning, more erudite than our own uh, reasoning. And so that we are this uh, non-thinking group of people, and so they've created a new faith. I don't know if it's a new faith, but it's certainly uh, a faith called scientism. And the scientism says, we follow the science, we follow the science. And you know, and, and what happens to us is because we don't, one, we don't know logic and we don't understand what the faith is based upon in terms of facts. We just are going along with it and it shouldn't be that way. Now, when I use that word science, some of you just glazed over right away. You looked at me and said, I don't want to talk about science. You know, I don't want to talk about Bruno either, but that's another story. If you know the movie, you obviously don't know the movie. So regardless of that. 
So I would encourage you, you know, uh, Mike Hall's going to be doing this thing called a Truth Project on October the 8th. I'd really recommend if you could be there. I know it says for 16 to 35-year-olds, but we're not going to card anybody. So, uh, you know, you might want to be there because that uh, he's going to talk to you about where's truth come from. We need to be a thinking group of people. You know, we're not supposed to love the Lord our God with, with just our, our emotions. What does it say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Use your mind in this. And so we should be a people that, that use our mind. So when we have these people that, that tell us that we're following the science and the science is settled and all of that sort of thing, we don't understand what even the tenets of science are and we don't understand how we can refute what they're saying. So I want to give you the five tenets of science. And you can determine whether or not they're following science. In fact, is you can even use this in an argument because when you realize that these five tenets of science came from science itself, that these people will have to say, well, 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 when they cannot answer you on this. The first tenet of science is scientific knowledge is tentative. Tentative means that it is not settled. And when you hear those words, well, the science is settled on this, they are not scientists that say that sort of thing. You see, it becomes somewhat theological in this because what they have done is they've said, we have our canon, we have our scripture, which is part of science, is what they're saying, and we're going to follow that scripture, and that scripture cannot be changed, and we're going to do this with our faith. That is more theological than it is Science, And that's what they're doing with it many times. You see, science is to be questioned. That's how science progresses forward. That's how Einstein didn't necessarily believe in Newtonian physics all the way. And so he questioned it and went beyond Newtonian physics. You've got to be able to understand that. You've got to be able to grasp. Science isn't settled. It's not science if it's settled. Secondly, scientific knowledge is empirically based. It's that is, it's derived from the observation of the natural world. When you quit measuring things, you're not doing science anymore. It should be something that you should be able to do that is measurable. It should be able to be uh, observable in this. Third one is science is inferential, imaginative, and creative. You realize that what happens is we learn this, we learn this, we learn this, and we have to use somewhat a little bit of inferring what that means or imagination what that means or creativity in order to what that means. And that is truly what science is. And I think that a lot of people think, well, it's just as solid as if I could say that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting on this wood right here. It's just as solid as that. It's not in that. It's, it, it's very movable in, within all of that. Uh, fourth, science is subjective and theory laden. It is subjective and theory laden. There, uh, understand, do you understand that many of the things we said were true in science, maybe even 10 years ago, we don't say is true anymore. You know, there's theory that's in there. And it's not proven, it's theory. And understand. And then so, science is socially and culturally embedded. Now that's a recognition of a weakness that science even recognizes in itself. Because you realize that Once you're in a social construct of people that try to eliminate God, it's just an example I'm using here, then what you're going to do is you're going to create all of your science so that that science eliminates God. So you realize that it is both socially and culturally embedded, and it affects how science is interpreted. Now, I want you to keep those tenets at hand, because when you have an individual who wants to 
argue with you and say, I'm following the science. You need to get out to these five tenets and say, well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because this comes from science itself. Now, this in itself is a very tricky message. I said that to you again. You say, I want to give you enough information to somewhat prove my points, but I don't want to give you so much information uh, that, uh, you know what, I'm going to have to wake you up at the end of the service. You know, so here's where we're going to go on this. But if you're truly interested in the science that gives God as the best explanation for creation, read um, this book, Return to the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe by Stephen C. Meyer. I recommend this book only if you want to read science. If you're not into it, book's about that thick. I'm going to tell you about 800 pages. I don't remember how many pages it is, about 800 pages. It gets into it deeply, in my opinion, somewhat deeply. And he proves the points through, uh, throughout the book. And in fact, some of the scientists that are out there have read this book and they have turned away from being atheist, at least to being somewhat agnostic. They say, we believe there's a God now, but we just don't know who he is. And, and I've seen some of these people come forward and say, I used to believe this, but now I, this is uh, good enough proof for me. But it's, this is truly a science book. I'm just I'll tell you, it's going to be a little bit difficult for you. Richard Feynman, who, run, who won the Nobel uh, Prize in physics, he was a noted scientist. He said this, if you thought that science was certain, well, that's just an error on your part. And he realized, even as a, a, not a believer, but he realized that science is always moving. It's not a set thing. Now, I want to get this out of the way because I think that people might want to say this. And I've heard this actually said, and I don't, and I don't believe this. That the Bible is not a textbook for science. It is not a textbook. Now, it doesn't mean the Bible is wrong about science. What I'm trying to say is it doesn't give you any formulas. It doesn't tell you uh, why things happened in a lot of ways. I mean, it may give you a general sense, but it doesn't give you that uh, sense. But at one time, nearly all scientists looked for patterns that revealed a creator. That was true of, of a good while ago, because what they realized is we're just discovering the patterns that are out there. We're just looking for the formulas because the formulas that are there are, are there because there's patterns, because there was a creator. So the science was the discovery of the patterns of the creator at one time. So let's start with the scripture here. Now I want you to pray for one other thing here. Uh, pray that the preacher doesn't confuse himself as much as he confuses you during this sermon, okay? Let's start with Genesis 1.1. Isn't that a good place to start? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, what it says there is a very much of a scientific principle, if you don't realize. You see, there must be a beginning. There is no possibility having an eternal past will never reach a present now. It is not going to happen. You see, there must be a beginning. And so... Time then has a direction that it goes on. I think uh, DJ or whoever's back there, if you'll hit that next one. Thank you so much. And come up there. You see, an eternal past will never reach a present now. Time has a direction or there can be no time. See, the argument states that, that a lot of people are saying, well, we can come to any moment in time by just observing it. That's true. But you can't get to any moment in time if you don't have a beginning point. You've got to have a beginning point. You see, if time travels eternally into the past and eternally into the future, it stands still. 
It's like getting on that, you've been to the airport, some kid will get on the, that uh, moving sidewalk and go in the wrong direction. And what does the child do? child walks the same speed, stands there in the same place, never moves. But he's, the child is walking. But the problem is, is that he's going the speed, the same speed as the conveyor belt, and he's staying in exactly the same place. And so what we realize is time has a direction. We have a direction because we notice that there is motion that is going on. That's, a difference. That's how you tell the difference between a photograph and a, and a movie, right? You know the difference between a photograph, it is a, time, a moment frozen in time, and then it is a, a movie, is a, a period of time that has gone by. So time must have a beginning. And this beginning could not begin itself because no motion results in no motion. Have you ever been stuck on ice? I don't know if you've ever been driving. You get stuck on ice and your tires just spinning like crazy and you're not going anywhere. And what's the problem? You have no place to push off from. If you do not have a place to push off from, if you have nothing else, you're just going to continue to spin and spin and spin. You need a toehold, as we say. And you see, uh, the same thing is true for us in time. But creation must have a beginning too. In the beginning, God created. See, a natural system cannot create. In a natural system, all things come from something In the first law of thermodynamics, it says that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be converted from one form to another. Now, what that's saying is, let's take, for example, we take a box. It is a sealed box. It has no air in it or anything else. It is completely sealed. You can take that box, set it wherever you want to set it, and as long as it remains a sealed box, what are you going to find when you open the box? Nothing. It's going to remain nothing because nothing could have been created inside of that box. Nothing ever comes from nothing, I'll tell you the truth. And so you have this. The most prevalent scientific uh, thought of the beginnings of the universe is the Big Bang Theory, right? What that says is that we've got to have a beginning of time. And what they've determined is, is that the one time the universe was in such a small state incredibly infinitely small state that all of it was there and so that there was no motion whatsoever in it and it exploded and then it made the whole universe well i need to ask you folks what made it explode if it is not moving and there is no time it will take something from an outside force to get it to explode that ball has been sitting there What is going to make that ball move? Is the ball going to move itself? No, it cannot move itself. Maybe I could blow on it and make it move. Maybe I could thump it, I could make it move. But I will be an outside force on that ball. It has to be that way. You see, it takes an outside force. And there is a first reaction there. So I would say this. It takes a deeply religious person, and I changed the words here to accept, you need to mark out your, your dealer, but accept the idea that God didn't start the universe. And I'll tell you what, this religion is called atheism. And because this religion must explain away and ignore so many facts to keep its own religion alive. However, from what we see in the beginning, God created 
we find that God creates out of nothing. He he is the outside of the universe creating out of absolutely nothing. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is a statement of fact, folks, not simply of faith. We accept it by faith, but it is a statement of fact. See, science requires that we will be able to infer that this is the way that this would happen. So let's go into the science of this. Everything has a previous action that puts it where it is now. You saw me put that ball down there. The reason that ball got to that place is because I put it there. There was a cause that happened, right? And you had a cause too. You had a cause that was, comes from your mother and your father. You really were not found out in the cabbage back, patch like your older brother told you that you were. You understand? And they had a cause too. And the cause goes from the, the cause to cause to cause to cause. See, the first cause in the universe then must come from outside the system. Because it cannot cause itself any more than that ball can start moving around on its own. It takes an outside force in order to do this. But not in in all of this creation, life requires a beginning. Life itself requires a beginning. See, God has made life in a manner that it can be perceived as having come from him. That really reeks of a designer, doesn't it? That it would come from him. Romans chapter 1 verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. That's something we can observe. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. We can see God in the very creation of life. Life has been, it cannot begin without a determined molecular code. I'm gonna, I want to say this to you. This is, this is an amazing thing to me. Discoveries in molecular biology have revealed the presence of a digital code at the foundation of life, suggesting the work of a master programmer. You see what I just said that to you? That the discoveries that we've discovered that there's a digital code at the very foundation of life that suggests the work of a master programmer. I say this to you. You know, I... I was in, uh, in 1972, and that was ancient days. I know for a lot of you, that was before you discovered America. But um, let me say this to you. I, I, I took a, a physics program, or a physics course in college, in which the, the course was, I didn't have a, the professor did not teach any of the classes. He gave us books, and he said, read the books, and then take the test. If you didn't make 100, you failed. I actually made 99 on one of the tests and failed. So you understand this is how the, how the course went. And then you, you went through it. And what you, your, your progress was determined by how far you got along in the course. One of those items that we had on that list of things to do was we had to write a computer program. 
And I don't even remember the language that we used back then. It's still all zeros and ones. But, but what you do is you use a computer program. And, and within that, we were using the punch cards. And some of you don't even know what that is. But what we would do is we would go to the, um, uh, well, literally the place where you punch cards. And we'd make those punch cards. And we would write out the computer program line by line, card by card. And we'd stack them all up and you'd put them in the reader. And the thing would read it. And supposedly your, your computer uh, uh, program would come out. Well, I would go over there and I spent hours upon hours typing in those things, but you realize that even a semicolon or a dash or a, a comma or a, or a space or anything else that is in there will make your program or will keep your program from working. Understand there's 43 quintillion possibilities in that Rubik's Cube. It was for me, it was the same as randomly trying to figure out how to make this program work. And you know what happened every time? Error on line 14, error on line 18, error on such and such. My program would not run over and over and over again. And I made a B in that course because I could not make that computer program run. It has to be that specific or it will not work. You realize at the molecular level, we have a digital code at the molecular level. It doesn't come about randomly. No more than my computer program will come about randomly. No more than I'm going to be able to solve that Rubik's Cube randomly. See, no current scientific explanation. Now, I want you to understand this. Current scientific explanation fully answers how first life can appear naturally. No current scientific explanation. That's why Richard Dawkins, which I call a militant atheist, who's out there trying to prove that there is no God. He actually writes books trying to prove there is no God. Realizing that there is a digital code in this, he has suggested that aliens came and seeded our earth. The problem there is, is where the aliens come from, in my opinion, but that doesn't seem to bother him you see, what he's saying is, is that I don't have an explanation, so therefore i got to come up with an explanation that doesn't include God in this. For if we look at it, if we look just like it said in Romans, we'll see that each creature has a design. Every living thing has some design. Even an amoeba has a design. So what, what happens is, is that in order for us to eliminate God in this process. We want to say that it just simply somehow evolved rather than was created. But when somebody says to you, I believe in evolution, why don't you ask them this question? Which theory of evolution do you, do you believe in? Do you believe in landmarkism? Do you believe in mutism? Do you believe in, uh, uh, do you believe in uh, what's it, neo-Darwinism? Do you believe in the uh, uh, natural selection? I mean, what, what the four main theories of, of uh, evolution and all of them disprove the other three. Do you understand? Here's their situation. Which one do you believe in? They don't want you to know that because they want to just believe in, I believe in evolution. Well, believe in which evolution? And so, you know, I would say this, let's look at nature and let's see how we can put God into it rather than them saying, let's look at nature and see how we can keep God out of it. See, one of the theories, and I only bring this one up, and this is one of the weirdest ones to me. 
and it's because it's becoming in very popular culture. One of the theories of eliminating God is, the, is found in the proposal for a multiverse. Now, here's the situation. They're bringing that into the movies. You've got Spider-Man in the multiverse and Doctor Strange in the multiverse or whoever else is out there in the multiverse. If you have it in Star Trek, they had the multiverse. You've got all of these multiverse ideas. Uh, there, I think it's because that you can get it into the, the lower levels, you know, into the popular culture in this way. You can get people to start to accept it and therefore they can... They can um, they can get an acceptance of this idea over overall. But the idea of the multiverse is that there are an infinite number of universes that are existing at the same time, uh, parallel with uh, ours, and that each one of them is a narrowing of the existence so that we can find a more perfect existence. Now, folks, here's the truth. I don't believe in the multiverse, but I love the idea I love the idea because I like to think that somewhere out there, there's a tall, dark, handsome version of me. (laughs) But I can't do it. Sorry. You see, that would mean that this is not the most perfect universe in the first place. And if there is a narrowing of that, doesn't that reek of somebody designing it? Even that would say there's got to be a God, even though I don't believe in it. Philosopher Richard Swinburne argues that the theistic approach to the explanation for our universe is much simpler than the multiverse. It is. Philosopher of physics Bruce Gordon agrees. In fact, there are a number of scientists who are refuting the naturalistic theories of creation. Thomas Nagel, and I read this book of his, um, oh gosh, four or five years ago. I don't remember how long ago it is. And he's a noted atheist. In fact, is, is that uh, he wrote this book called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist uh, Neo-Darwinian uh, rather, Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. He wrote this book called that. He had to write, he wrote a prelude to the thing because he got so many Christians saying, thank you for your book. And he said, I am not a Christian. He said, I don't know how the universe, or I don't know how creation began. I just don't think the way they're saying it began. That's all he's saying. I don't think they're right. That's all he's saying in that book. What he's come up and said, this makes no sense whatsoever. You are coming up with a solution that is not really viable. I believe we as Christians need to get into the fields of science. And yes, I know there are going to be professors that are going to be out there that are going to question your faith. That's okay. But you will know whether or not you've got a real scientist when he has doubts about his theories. You remember that first tenet of science that is there. It is tentative. So why is man so bent in eliminating God? Well, I believe it goes back all the way to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and Satan comes along and he says to, uh, to Eve and Adam, Adam happens to be there, so let's not blame it all on Eve. He says, he says you can become a god. He says that to, to Eve and she says, I like that. Down deep within us, there is created within us to be like God in holiness and justice and other attributes. But when that is corrupted, we want to be a god And that fallen form, our desire, is to be God in itself. And the problem is, is that you cannot be a God if there is a God. 
You cannot be a God if there is a God. And so you have to eliminate God if you're going to be God. If you're going to do anything you want. The Bible says that a fool says there is no God. It's found in many places in the Bible, but one place is in Psalm 53.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. See, God is seen by many people as, as, a, as a person or an entity that keeps people from being themselves. They say, well, if I have a God, I can't do all that I want to do. Well, the truth is a spirit-filled relationship with God will certainly keep you from doing anything you want. In Galatians 5.16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So for some, they see God as a cosmic killjoy. God is not going to let me have all the joy that I want. I'm going to get away from God. I don't want a God in my life because of that. But God is truthfully more like a loving parent who doesn't want you to hurt yourself. Now, think of it this way. As a kid, you saw cartoons. And in those cartoons, you saw that there were, there were uh, well, sometimes creatures and sometimes people. And they would have something like a bed sheet. And they would come flopping, uh, you know, they'd start falling out of something. They'd grab the four corners of the bed sheet and they'd float gently to the ground. So as a kid, you said, I like that idea. And somehow you get on the roof of your house. Okay, so you got out there on the roof of your house and you got your bed sheet and you're ready to go and your mother comes outside and she sees you on the roof of your house. Now, what does she say to you? Knock yourself out? No, because that's exactly what you're about to do. You know, what does she say? Get down from there right now. Get down, get down, get down. I want you to walk coming right there. Get, get off of there. How'd you get up there in the first place? You know, now here's the situation. Your mom is not trying to kill your joy. Your mom's trying to keep you from killing yourself. That's exactly what's going on. And what's going on with God is, is that when he puts a restriction in our life, it's not so it will kill our joy. It's to give us joy in the first place. That's the reason behind it. So what we find is, is that when we're so full of ourselves that we need to not have a God, and we're going against him, we're actually hurting ourselves. See, pride has no place for God. You remember who said it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven? And don't give me the line out of Star Trek 2. You know, where did it originally come from? It says, it says, it comes from John Milton's Paradise Lost. It is said by Satan after he is cast out of heaven, it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven, is what he said. Psalm 10.4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And when you take an observation of the universe and you realize that there is a creator that created you and you realize that he wants the best for your life, then you will not be the master of your fate or the captain of your soul. For there is a God who wants more than that for you. You know, this is an incredible position to take when God is seeking your welfare to go against him. 
This is why the story of the prodigal son makes so much sense to me. See, the son goes and says, Father, Dad, I want to treat you like you're dead. You understand? That's what he's actually said. He says, I want my inheritance. And how do you get an inheritance? You get an inheritance when somebody dies, right? That's how you get an inheritance. That's the way I know how to get an inheritance. You get it when somebody dies. So he goes to his dad and says, I want to treat you like you are dead. That's what an atheist is doing. That's what a person is doing when they're, they're going and saying there is no God. I, God, I, know, I mean, I don't know if you're there, but what I'm going to do is, is that I'm going to treat you as if you're dead. But the father wants the very best for the, for the son in this. He lets him go because he will never have him unless he comes back. God lets us go. But when he comes back, the son is restored. Do you realize what happens right after he gives him the, you know, the, the sandals, the ring, the, you know, the, the robe and all of that? You know what they have? Did he take him out behind the woodshed and whip him a couple of times? What happened? through a party. God is so glad to see you come home. That's the truth. God is so glad to see you come home. Do you think he wants to kill your joy? Or do you think that God could be seeking your joy? I think the latter. Pray with me.